Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep. The place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 34 to 36 of A Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. In the last chapter, our adventurers had found themselves back at the shores they had left off on after their perilous journey through the internal sea. In tonight's story, Henry, Hans and the Professor go on a journey of discovery. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 34 A Voyage of Discovery It would be altogether impossible for me to give any idea of the utter astonishment which overcame the Professor on our making this extraordinary discovery. Amazement, incredulity and rage were blending in such a way as to alarm me. During the whole course of my life, I had never seen a man at first so chapfallen and then so furiously indignant. The terrible fatigues of our sea voyage, the fearful dangers we had passed through, had all, all, gone for nothing. We had to begin them all over again. Instead of progressing, as we fondly expected, during a voyage of so many days, we had retreated. Every hour of our expedition on the raft had been so much lost time. Presently, however, the indomitable energy of my uncle overcame every other consideration. So, he said, between his set teeth. Fatality will play me these terrible tricks. The elements themselves conspire to overwhelm me with mortification. Air, fire and water combine their united efforts to oppose my passage. Well, they shall see what the earnest will of determined man can do. I will not yield. I will not retreat even one inch, and we shall see who shall triumph in this great contest, man or nature. Standing upright on a rock, irritated and menacing, Professor Hardwig, like the ferocious Ajax, seemed to defy the fates. I, however, took upon myself to interfere and to impose some sort of check upon such insensate enthusiasm. Listen to me, uncle, I said, in a firm but temperate tone of voice. 
There must be some limit to ambition here below. It is utterly useless to struggle against the impossible. Pray listen to reason. We are utterly unprepared for a sea voyage. It is simply madness to think of performing a journey of five hundred leagues upon a wretched pile of beams, with a counterpane for a sail, and a poultry stick for a mast, and a tempest to contend with. As we are totally incapable of steering our frail craft, we shall become the mere plaything of the storm, and it is acting the part of madman if we, a second time, run any risk upon this dangerous and treacherous central sea. These are only a few of the reasons and arguments I put together, reasons and arguments which to me appeared unanswerable. I was allowed to go on without interruption for about ten minutes. The explanation to this I soon discovered. The professor was not even listening, and did not hear a word of all my eloquence. To the raft, he cried in a hoarse voice, when I paused for a reply. Such was the result of my strenuous effort to resist his iron will. I tried again. I begged and implored him. I got into a passion, but I had to deal with a will more determined than my own. I seemed to feel like the waves which fought and battled against the huge mass of granite at our feet, which had smiled grimly for so many ages at their puny efforts. Hans, meanwhile, without taking part in our discussion, had been repairing the raft. One would have supposed that he instinctively guessed at the further projects of my uncle. By means of some fragments of cordage, he had again made the raft seaworthy. While I had been speaking, he had hoisted a new mast and sail, the latter already fluttering and waving in the breeze. The worthy professor spoke a few words to our imperturbable guide, who immediately began to put our baggage on board and to prepare for our departure. The atmosphere was now tolerably clear and pure, and the northeast wind blew steadily and serenely. It appeared likely to last for some time. What, then, could I do? Could I undertake to resist the iron will of two men? It was simply impossible if even I could have hoped for the support of Hans. This, however, was out of the question. It appeared to me that the Icelander had set aside all personal will and identity. He was a picture of abnegation. I could hope for nothing from one so infatuated and devoted to his master. All I could do therefore, was to swim with the stream. In a mood of stolid and sullen resignation, I was about to take my accustomed place on the raft when my uncle placed his hand on my shoulder. There is no hurry, my boy, he said. We shall not start until tomorrow. I looked the picture of resignation to the dire will of fate. Under the circumstances, he said, I ought to neglect no precautions. As fate has cast me upon these shores, I shall not leave without having completely examined them. In order to understand this remark, I must explain that though we had been driven back to the northern shore, we had landed at a very different spot from that which had been our starting point. Port Gretchen must, we calculated, 
be very much to the westward. Nothing, therefore, was more natural and reasonable than that we should reconnoitre this new shore upon which we had so unexpectedly landed. Let us go on a journey of discovery, I cried, and leaving hands to his important operation, we started on our expedition. The distance between the foreshore at high water and the foot of the rocks was considerable. It would take about half an hour's walk to get from one to the other. As we trudged along, our feet crushed innumerable shells of every shape and size, once the dwelling place of animals of every period of creation. I particularly noticed some enormous shells, carapaces, turtle and tortoise species the diameter of which exceeded fifteen feet. They had in past ages belonged to those gigantic glyptodons of the Pliocene period, of which the modern turtle is but a minute specimen. In addition, the whole soil was covered by a vast quantity of stony relics, having the appearance of flints worn by the action of the waves and lying in successive layers, one above the other. I came to the conclusion that in past ages, the sea must have converted the whole district. Upon the scattered rocks, now lying far beyond its reach, the mighty waves of ages had left evident marks of their passage. On reflection, this appeared to me partially to explain the existence of this remarkable ocean, forty leagues below the surface of the Earth's crust. According to my new, and perhaps fanciful theory, this liquid mass must be gradually lost in the deep bowels of the Earth. I had also no doubt that this mysterious sea was fed by infiltration of the ocean above, through imperceptible fissures. Nevertheless, it was impossible not to admit that these fissures must now be nearly choked up, for if not, the cavern, or rather, the immense and stupendous reservoir, would have been completely filled in a short space of time. Perhaps even this water, having to contend against the accumulated subterraneous fires of the interior of the earth, had become partially vaporized. Hence the explanation of those heavy clouds suspended over our heads, and the superabundant display of that electricity which occasioned such terrible storms in this deep and cavernous sea. This lucid explanation of the phenomena we had witnessed appeared to me quite satisfactory. However great and mighty the marvels of nature may seem to us, they are always to be explained by physical reasons. Everything is subordinate to some great law of nature. It now appeared clear that we were walking upon a kind of sedimentary soil, formed like all the soils of that period, so frequent on the surface of the globe, by the subsidence of the waters. The professor, who was now in his element, carefully examined every rocky fissure. Let him only find an opening, and it directly became important to him to examine its depths. For a whole mile we followed the winding of the central sea, when suddenly an important change took place in the aspect of the soil. It seemed to have been rudely cast up, convulsionized, as it were, by a violent upheaving of the lower strata. In many places, hollows here and hillocks there 
attested great dislocations at some other period of the terrestrial mass. We advanced with great difficulty over the broken masses of granite mixed with flint, quartz, and alluvial deposits when a large field, more even than a field, when a plane of bones appeared suddenly before our eyes. It looked like an immense cemetery where generation after generation had mingled their mortal dust. Lofty barrows of early remains rose at intervals. They undulated away to the limits of the distant horizon and were lost in a thick and brown fog. On that spot, some three square miles in extent, was accumulated the whole history of animal life. Scarcely one creature upon the comparatively modern soil of the upper and inhabited world had not there existed. Nevertheless, we were drawn forward by an all-absorbing and impatient curiosity. Our feet crushed with a dry and crackling sound the remains of those prehistoric fossils for which the museums of great cities quarrel, even when they obtained only rare and curious morsels, would not have sufficed to recompose the skeletons of the organic beings which lay in this magnificent, osseous collection. I was utterly confounded. My uncle stood for some minutes with his arms raised on high towards the thick granite vault which served us for a sky. His mouth was wide open. His eyes sparkled wildly behind his spectacles, which he had fortunately saved. His head bobbed up and down and from side to side, while his whole attitude and mane expressed unbounded astonishment. He stood in the presence of an endless, wondrous, and inexhaustibly rich collection of antediluvian monsters, piled up for his own private and peculiar satisfaction. Fancy an enthusiastic lover of books, carried suddenly into the very midst of the famous Library of Alexandria, burned by the sacrilegious Omar, and which some miracle had restored to its pristine splendour. Such was something of the state of mind in which Uncle Hardwick was now placed. For some time he stood thus, literally aghast at the magnitude of his discovery but it was even a greater excitement when, darting wildly over this mass of organic dust, he caught up a naked skull and addressed me in a quivering voice. Harry, my boy, Harry, this is a human head. A human head, uncle, I said no less amazed and stupefied than himself. Yes, nephew. Ah, Mr. Milne Edwards. Ah, Mr. de Quatrefag. Why are you not here when I am? I, Professor Hardwig. Chapter 35 Discovery upon Discovery In order fully to understand the exclamation made by my uncle and his allusions to these illustrious and learned men, it will be necessary to enter into certain explanations in regard to a circumstance of the highest importance to paleontology or the science of fossil life which had taken place a short time before our departure from the upper region of the earth. 
On the 28th of March, 1863, some navigators under the direction of Monsieur Beauchamp de Perthes were at work in the great quarries of moulin Quignon, near Abbeville, in the department of Somme, in France. While at work, they unexpectedly came upon a human jawbone buried fourteen feet below the surface of the soil. It was the first fossil of the kind that had ever been brought to the light of day. Near this unexpected human relic were found stone hatchets and carved flints, coloured and clothed by time in one uniform, brilliant tint of verdigris. The report of this extraordinary and unexpected discovery spread not only all over France, but over England and Germany. Many learned men belonging to various scientific bodies, and noteworthy among others, Monsieur. Milne Edwards and de Quatrefage took the affair very much to heart, demonstrated the incontestable authenticity of the bone in question, and became, to use the phrase then recognised in England, the most ardent supporters of the jawbone question. To the eminent geologists of the United Kingdom, who looked upon the fact as certain, Monsieur, Falconer, Buck, Carpenter, and others, were soon united the learned men of Germany, and among those in the first rank, the most eager, the most enthusiastic, was my noteworthy uncle, Professor Hardwick. The authenticity of a human fossil of the quaternary period seemed then to be incontestably demonstrated, and even to be admitted by the most sceptical. This system or theory, call it what you will, had, it is true, a bitter adversary in Monsieur Elie de Beaumont. This learned man, who holds such a high place in the scientific world, holds that the soil of Moulin-Quignon does not belong to the Diluvium, but to a much less ancient stratum, and, in accordance with Couver in this respect, he would by no means admit that the human species was contemporary with the animals of the Quaternary Epoch. My worthy uncle, Professor Hardwig, in concert with the great majority of geologists, had held firm, had disputed, discussed, and finally, after considerable talking and writing, Monsieur Elie de Beaumont had been pretty well left alone in his opinions. We were familiar with all the details of this discussion, but were far from being aware that since our departure, the matter had entered upon a new phase. Other similar jawbones, though belonging to individuals of varied types and very different natures, had been found in the movable grey sands of certain grottoes in France, Switzerland and Belgium, together with arms, utensils, tools, bones of children, of men in the prime of life, and of old men. The existence of men in the quaternary period became, therefore, more positive every day. But this was far from being all. New remains, dug up from the Pliocene or tertiary deposits, had enabled the more far-seeing or audacious among learned men to assign even a far greater degree of antiquity to the human race. These remains, it is true, were not those of men, that is, were not the bones of man but objects decidedly having served the human race. Shin bones, thigh bones, of fossil animals, regularly scooped out, and in fact sculptured, bearing the unmistakable sign of human handiwork.
by means of these wondrous and unexpected discoveries, man ascended endless centuries in the scale of time. He, in fact, preceded the Mastodon, became the contemporary of the Alphus Meridonalus, the southern elephant, acquired an antiquity of over a hundred thousand years, since that is the date given by the most eminent geologists to the Pliocene period of the Earth. Such was then the state of paleontological science, and what was moreover new was suffice to explain our attitude before this great cemetery of the plains of the Hardwick Ocean. It will now be easy to understand the professor's mingled astonishment and joy when, on advancing about twenty yards, he found himself in the presence of, I may say face to face with, a specimen of the human race actually belonging to the quaternary period. It was indeed a human skull, perfectly recognisable had a soil of very peculiar nature, like that of the cemetery of St. Michael at Bordeaux, preserved it during countless ages. This was the question I asked myself, but which I was wholly unable to answer. But this head, with stretched and parchmenty skin, with the teeth whole, the hair abundant, was before our eyes as in life. I stood mute, almost paralysed with wonder and awe before this dread apparition of another age. My uncle, who on almost every occasion was a great talker, remained for a time completely dumbfounded. He was too full of emotion for speech to be possible. After a while, however, he raised up the body to which the skull belonged. We stood it on end. It seemed, to our excited imaginations, to look at us with its terrible, hollow eyes. After some minutes of silence, the man was vanquished by the professor. Human instincts succumbed to scientific pride and exultation. Professor Hardwig, carried away by his enthusiasm, forgot all the circumferences of our journey, the extraordinary position in which we were placed, the immense cavern which stretched far over our heads. There can be no doubt that he thought himself at the institution addressing his attentive pupils, for he put on his most doctorial style, waved his hand, and began. Gentlemen, I have the honour of this auspicious occasion to present to you a man of the quaternary period of our globe. Many learned men have denied his very existence, while other able persons, perhaps of even higher authority, have affirmed their belief in the reality of his life. If the St. Thomases of paleontology were present, they would reverentially touch him with their fingers and believe in his existence, thus acknowledging their obstinate hearsay. I know that science should be careful in relation to all discoveries of this nature. I am not without having heard of the many Bornums and other quacks who have made a trade of such like pretended discoveries. I have, of course, heard of the discovery of the knee-bone of Ajax, of the pretended finding of the body of Aristes by the Spartiates, and of the body of Austerus, ten spans long, fifteen feet, of which we read in Porcinius. I have read everything in relation to the skeleton of Trapani, discovered in the fourteenth century and which many chose to regard as that of Polyphemus, and the history of the giant dug up during the 16th century in the environs of Palmyra. You are well aware as I am 
gentlemen, of the existence of the celebrated analysis made near Lucerne in 1577 of the great bones which the celebrated Dr. Felix Platter declared belonged to a giant about nineteen feet high. I have devoured all the treaties of the Cassanion, and all those memoirs, pamphlets, speeches, and replies published in reference to the skeleton of Teutobochus, king of Kimberi, the invader of Gaul, dug out of a gravel pit in Dauphine in 1613. In the 18th century, I should have denied, with Peter Campet, the existence of the Predamites of Schutzia. I have had in my hand the writing of Gingens. Here my uncle was afflicted by the natural affirmity which prevented him from pronouncing difficult words in public. It was not exactly stuttering, but a strange sort of constitutional hesitation. The writing named Giggins, he repeated. He, however, could get no further. Gigantio. Impossible. The unfortunate word would not come out. There would have been great laughter at the institution had the mistake happened there. Gigantosteology, at last exclaimed Professor Hardwig between two savage growls. Having got over our difficulty and getting more and more excited. Yes, gentlemen. I am well acquainted with all these matters, and know, also, that Cuvier and Blumbach fully recognised in these bones the undeniable remains of mammoths of the Quaternary period. But after what we now see, to allow a doubt is to insult scientific inquiry. There is the body. You can see it. You can touch it. It is not a skeleton. It is a complete and uninjured body, preserved with an anthropological object. I did not attempt to controvert this singular and astounding assertion. If I could but wash this corpse in a solution of sulfuric acid, continued my uncle, I would undertake to remove all the earthy particles and these resplendent shells which are encrusted all over the body. But I am without this precious dissolving medium. Nevertheless, such as it is, this body will tell its own history. Here the professor held up the fossil body and exhibited it with rare dexterity. No professional showman could have shown more activity. As on examination you will see, my uncle continued, it is only about six feet in length, which is a long way from the pretended giants of early days. The skull of this fossil being is a perfect ovoid, without any remarkable or prominent development of the cheekbones, and without any projection of the jaw. It presents no indication of the prognathism which modifies the facial angle. Measure the angle for yourself and you will find that it is just 90 degrees. But I will advance still farther on the road of inquiry and deduction, and I dare venture to say that this human sample or specimen belongs to the Japhetic family, which spread over the world from India to the uttermost limits of Western Europe. There is no occasion, gentlemen, to smile at my remarks. Of course, nobody smiled, but the excellent professor was so accustomed to beaming countenance at his lectures that he believed he saw all his audience laughing during the delivery of his learned dissertation. Yes, he continued, with renewed animation. This is a fossil man, a contemporary of the Mastodons, 
with the bones of which this whole amphitheatre is covered. But if I am called on to explain how he came to this place, how these various strata by which he is covered have fallen into this vast cavity, I can undertake to give you no explanation. Doubtless, if we carry ourselves back to the Quaternary Epoch, we shall find that great and mighty convulsions took place in the crust of the earth, the continually cooling operation through which the earth had to pass, produced fissures, landslips, and chasms, through which a large portion of the earth made its way. I came to no absolute conclusion, but there is the man, surrounded by the works of his hand, his hatchets and his carved flints, which belonged to the stony period, and the only rational supposition is that, like myself, he visited the centre of the earth as a travelling tourist, a pioneer of science. At all events, there can be no doubt of his great age, and of his being one of the oldest race of human beings. The professor with these words ceased his oration, and I burst forth into loud and unanimous applause. Besides, after all, my uncle was right. Much more learned men than his nephew would have found it rather hard to refute his facts and arguments. Other circumstance soon presented itself. This fossilised body was not the only one in the vast plain of bones, the cemetery of an extinct world. Other bodies were found as we trod the dusty plain, and my uncle was able to choose the most marvellous of these specimens in order to convince the most incredulous. In truth, it was a surprising spectacle, the successive remains of generations and generations of men and animals confounded together in one vast cemetery. But a great question now presented itself to our notice, and one we were actually afraid to contemplate in all its bearings. Had these once animated beings been buried so far beneath the soil by some tremendous convulsion of nature, after they had been earth to earth and ashes to ashes, or had they lived here below, in this subterranean world, under this facetious sky, born, married, and given in marriage, and died at last, just like ordinary inhabitants of the earth. Up to the present moment, marine monsters, fish, and such like animals, had alone been seen alive. The question which rendered us rather uneasy was a pertinent one. Were any of these men of the abyss wandering about the deserted shores of this wondrous sea of the centre of the earth? This was a question which rendered me very uneasy and uncomfortable. How, should they really be in existence, would they receive us men from above? Chapter 36 What is it? For a long and weary hour we tramped over this great bed of bones. We advanced regardless of everything, drawn on by ardent curiosity. What other marvels did this great cavern contain? What other wondrous treasures for the scientific man? My eyes were quite prepared for a number of surprises. My imagination lived in expectation of something new and wonderful. The borders of the great central ocean had for some time disappeared behind the hills that were scattered over the ground, occupied by plains of bones. The imprudent and enthusiastic professor 
who did not care whether he lost himself or not, hurried me forward. We advanced silently, bathed in waves of electric fluid. By reason of phenomenon which I cannot explain, and thanks to its extreme diffusion, now complete, the light illuminated equally the sides of every hill and rock. Its seat appeared to be nowhere, in no determined force, and produced no shade whatever. The appearance presented was that of a tropical country at midday in summer, in the midst of the equatorial regions and under the vertical rays of the sun. All signs of vapour had disappeared. The rocks, the distant mountains, some confused masses of far-off forest, assumed a weird and mysterious aspect under this equal distribution of the luminous fluid. We resembled, to a certain extent, the mysterious personage in one of Hoffman's fantastic tales, the man who lost his shadow. After we had walked about a mile farther, we came to the edge of a vast forest, not, however, one of the vast mushroom forests we had discovered near Port Gretchen. It was the glorious and wild vegetation of the Tertiary period, in all its superb magnificence. Huge palms of a species now unknown, superb palmacities, a genus of fossil palms from the coal formation, pines, yews, cypress, and conifers or cone-bearing trees, the whole bound together by an inextricable and complicated mass of creeping plants. A beautiful carpet of mosses and ferns grew beneath the trees. Pleasant brooks murmured beneath umbrageous boughs, little worthy of this name, for no shade did they give. Upon their borders grew small, tree-like shrubs, such as are seen in the hot countries on our own inhabited globe. The one thing wanting in these plants, these shrubs, these trees, was colour. Forever deprived of the vivifying warmth of the sun, they were vapid and colourless. All shade was lost in one uniform tint of a brown and faded character. The leaves were wholly devoid of verdure, and the flowers, so numerous during the tenantry period which gave them birth, were without colour and without perfume, something like paper discoloured by long exposure to the atmosphere. My uncle ventured beneath the gigantic groves. I followed him, though not without a certain amount of apprehension. Since nature had shown herself capable of producing such stupendous vegetable supplies, why might we not meet with mammals just as large, and therefore dangerous? I particularly remarked, in the clearings left by trees that had fallen, and been partially consumed by time, many leguminous, bean-like shrubs, such as the maple and other eatable trees, dear to ruminating animals. Then there appeared confounded together and intermixed the trees of such varied lands, specimens of vegetation of every part of the globe. There was the oak near the palm tree, the Australian eucalyptus, an interesting class of the order of Myrtacea, leaning against the tall Norwegian pine, the poplar of the north, mixing its branches with those of the New Zealand chorus. It was enough to drive the most ingenious classifier of the upper region out of his mind and to upset all his received ideas about botany.
Suddenly, I stopped short and restrained my uncle. The extreme diffuseness of the light enabled me to see the smallest object in the distant copses. I thought I saw. No, I really did see with my own eyes immense, gigantic animals moving about under the mighty trees. Yes, they were truly gigantic animals. A whole herd of mastodons. Not fossils, but living, and exactly like those discovered in 1801 on the marshy banks of the Great Ohio in North America. Yes, I could see these enormous elephants, whose trunks were tearing down large boughs and working in and out the trees like a legion of serpents. I could hear the sound of the mighty tusks uprooting huge trees. The boughs crackled. The whole masses of leaves and green branches went down the capacious throats of these terrible monsters. That wondrous dream, when I saw the antihistorical times revivified when the territory and quaternary periods passed before me, was now realized. And there we were, alone, far down in the bowels of the earth, at the mercy of its ferocious inhabitants. My uncle paused, full of wonder and astonishment. Come, he said at last, when his first surprise was over. Come along, my boy, and let us see them nearer. No, replied I, restraining his efforts to drag me forward. We are wholly without arms. What should we do in the midst of that flock of gigantic quadrupeds? Come away, uncle, I implore you. No human creature can with impunity brave the ferocious anger of these monsters. No human creature, said my uncle, suddenly lowering his voice to a mysterious whisper. You are mistaken, my dear Henry. Look, look yonder. It seems to me that I behold a human being, a being like ourselves, a man. I looked, shrugging my shoulders, decided to push incredulity to its very last limits. But whatever might have been my wish, I was compelled to yield to the weight of ocular demonstration. Yes, not more than a quarter of a mile off, leaning against the trunk of an enormous tree, was a human being, a proteus of these subterranean regions, a new son of Neptune, keeping this innumerable herd of mastodons. Yes, it was no longer a fossil whose corpse we had raised from the ground in the great cemetery, but a giant capable of guiding and driving these prodigious monsters. His height was above twelve feet. His head, as big as the head of a buffalo, was lost in a mane of matted hair. It was indeed a huge mane, like those which belonged to the elephants of the early ages of the world. In his hand was a branch of a tree, which served as a crook for this antediluvian shepherd. We remained profoundly still, speechless with surprise. But we might at any moment be seen by him. Nothing remained for us but instant flight. Come, come, I cried, dragging my uncle along, and for the first time he made no resistance to my wishes. A quarter of an hour later, we were far, far away from that terrible monster. Now that I think of the matter calmly, and that I reflect upon it dispassionately, now that months, years have passed since this strange and unnatural adventure befell us, what am I to think? What am I to believe? No, it is utterly impossible. Our ears must have deceived us. Our eyes have cheated us. 
We have not seen what we believe we have seen. No human being could by any possibility have existed in that subterranean world. No generation of men could inhabit the lower caverns of the globe without taking note of those people in the surface, without communication with them. It was folly, folly, nothing else. I am rather inclined to admit the existence of some animal resembling in structure the human face, of some monkey of the first geological epochs, like that discovered by M. Lartet in the Ociferous deposit of Sansan. But this animal, or being, whichsoever it was, surpassed in height all things known to modern science. Never mind. However unlikely it may be, it might have been a monkey, but a man, a living man, and with him a whole generation of gigantic animals, buried in the entrails of the earth. It was too monstrous to be believed. <laughs>